My advice is going to be from the perspective of the entrepreneur who is bootstrapping their business. Mm-hmm. And it is to crawl before you walk and walk before you run. I think it's really important to, uh, to not grow too fast, uh, to, uh, you know, to keep, the, keep this gradual pace uh, because it's not just growing a business is about figuring out how you can sustain the business. And every step of growth makes the stability of the business, it reduces the stability of the business. You have to grow into that larger business so that you are on top of it and you can then get to the next level. Everyone, this is Devin Miller here with another episode of The Inventive Journey. I'm your host, Devin Miller, the serial entrepreneur that's grown several startups into seven and eight figure businesses, as well as the founder and CEO of Miller IP Law, where we help startups and small businesses with their patents and trademarks. If you ever need help with yours, um, feel free to go to strategymeeting.com and grab some time with us to chat. Now, today we have another great uh, guest on the podcast, Steve uh, Preda, Preda or Preda, is it right? Preda, yeah. Preda. Close as I'm going to get. So um, give you a quick uh, background on Steve. So since the age of the 10 or age of 10, always wanted to be an entrepreneur, um, was a bit inspired by his uh, grandpa that was a baker in Budapest. Um, parents were both professionals and wanted him to become one as well. Um, and then uh, went to college, graduated, came up with the idea for a board game, graduated, got a job, went to uh, work for, I think, big banks for a period of time, and then put the board game aside. Um, did that or worked for the big banks for about 10 years. And then uh, there was some downsizing that uh, got let go with and best thing that could have happened to him in his own work, so to speak, got fired on Friday and opened his business on Monday, had his clients that started to come in, became a market leader, and then hit, uh, got hit with the EU uh, crisis a bit in 2011. So decided to come to the U.S. Um, then uh, got into or had someone that wanted to buy his business, had a few things and went or went along with there, uh, came back with in a, and came back and then did uh, business coaching. So with that much as a brief or quick introduction, welcome on the podcast, Steve. Thank you, Devin. Great to be here. But I mean, you told my whole story, so maybe I can, we can wrap this up right here. There we go. We'll just leave on a high note and call it a day. So, no, I gave the brief over you, but now let's go back in time and talk a little bit about your journey and a little bit how you got started at uh, 10 years old and uh, getting inspired with inspired with your grandpa as a baker in Budapest. <laughs> okay, so a small correction. So it wasn't my grandpa. It was my great-grandpa. So I never oh, actually right. met with him, but he was a baker in pre-Second uh, World War Hungary, and he built... Uh, you know, it was a small business, but it was like 20 employees. Actually, just a week ago, I got a picture from a distant relative of the whole uh, team, you know, and in front of the ovens. It's actually pretty cool. So, uh, yes, he was the entrepreneur and he became successful. But then with the uh, nationalizations after the war, you know, the family lost uh, lost the, uh, the the business. And my, my parents became professionals. And uh, I... I always felt like uh, that I was not going to work in an office job where I'm constricted and, and put in a box. I was like this no limit existent I, existence idea where you basically, you can make of yourself whatever you want. Um, and, um, and I had this board game idea when I was uh, around 21 years old when we had the change of the regime. We went from communism in Hungary to uh, to a multi-party democracy, and I had this board game idea 
which was a version of monopoly for for communist uh, countries. And so uh, instead of uh, buying property, you would nationalize and confiscate property from other other players. So there were more ways of of losing uh, losing your property. And uh, but this never uh, took off because I got the job. Um, I got a scholarship in the Netherlands, and I went to London uh, to work uh, there for for a few years with with KPMG, big accounting firm. And then I mm. got back and got into banking. And uh, my entrepreneurial story starts when I was uh, thirty five years old, and uh, and I was you know I was running this uh, mergers and acquisitions department in this bank, <clears throat> and uh, we were just you know I took over this department uh, maybe nine months pre- previously, and uh, started to build up the pipeline. And just when things were starting to take off, uh, the bank went through a softer uh, summer. And they realized that they needed to cut costs to make their make their numbers. And they look at the payroll, and I was one of the higher paid employees. So they pushed me out. And uh, first, it was a big big shock. But within hours, I realized that this was a huge opportunity for me because for the previous uh, several years, uh, I you know I had to put my entrepreneurial plans on ice because I had this career, so to say, mm-hmm. career. Uh, I was well paid. I was, you know, I was on this management track, and the opportunity cost was too big for me to switch. And suddenly, with being fired from the bank, the opportunity cost was gone, and I no longer had to make this painful decision of putting my family at risk of not having this, you know, salary coming in every morning, uh, every every month. So, uh, so that was when I started running my business, and uh, and we had a good run. Uh, one thing I'd like to mention, around 2004, um, I stumbled upon a book called The E-Myth uh, by Michael Gerber, which mm-hmm. I'm sure, Devin, you, you read it, and many of our listeners probably read it, which is basically a recipe for how to turn a small business into a growing, thriving enterprise. Well, let, let and, me just dive in really quick, because I just had one, or kind of one, before we lose it or go too far down the the um, the hole or you know too far into the future, when you, so you were working for a big bank at the time and and you know that was a you know stable or a good job or you you know you did it uh, for the stability for you know ten years or so. When you did get downsized, I think one of the things that you said was that, you know basically you know you got fired on Friday and opened your business on Monday and you know how did you you know that's a pretty quick pretty quick turnaround to open up a business, get it going and trying, you know, have clients follow you and everything else. So how did you, you know, over that quick transition, did, you know, when you got or let go was to say, okay, I've always wanted to do my own business. I'm going to do it now. I'm not going, you know, rather, cause you could have also gone and applied to other jobs. You could have gone and got hired from someone else. You could have taken a bit of time or anything else rather than just in within the matter of a weekend opening up your business. So how did you kind of make that decision that you're, this was your opportunity to go chase down your own thing and, and get going on it? Well, actually, so I can I can replay the whole weekend for you if you want. But the sequence of events was so I got my pink slip uh, around 5 p.m. on Friday, and I made some calls. And my first reaction was, uh, and my team my team basically said, "Hey, we are with you. If you're leaving, uh, we're going to leave with you." And mm-hmm. I made some calls, and the first idea was to to basically the whole team to walk over to another bank, and uh, and it turned out that. Uh, with, they talked to two banks uh, through connections and turned out that they were not going to be able to make a quick decision on this. So this was kind of a pending thing. And then in the meantime, 
my second in command got summoned into the office of the, the senior vice president who, who was my boss. Mm. And basically they took my car, they gave him my car, they gave him my, you know, they gave him a big bump on his salary. And essentially he was off. And from, from that moment, he, he decided that he was not gonna leave. So this idea was mute uh, of us walking out as a team. And uh, then, you know, I had basically the weekend to figure out what I was going to do. And uh, we had actually we had four clients at the time in the department. It was like five or five of us in the department. And we had four clients. And one of the clients was ready to walk over to me uh, within, within a matter of days. And then the second client came over as well within a couple of weeks. And uh, I was absolutely pissed off with, with this whole firing. So I kind of resolved to myself that I was going to get the other two clients as well, just to prove my point that uh, they shouldn't have fired me. And, uh, and, and actually, they also came over. So by, uh, within six months, uh, both of the other clients came over and uh, I got my little revenge. But essentially, all I needed was a computer. I walked across the street. A friend of mine lent, uh, let him his apartment that was vacant for a time being for like 100 bucks a month. So I, I got started. I, I called one of the computer guys from the office who I was friendly with, and he came over and he fixed up my computer, and I was off to the races. So that's that's what that's what happened. <laughs> Sounds like a very uh, productive weekend or a productive few days. So now now that you did that and and you know you were getting into you you know you you got the business you know you, you got uh, the business open within a, the matter of a few days got your first few clients you know and now you have the opportunity to kind of build your business or you know take that leap of faith and actually go out on your own. How did it go for you? Was it a raving success and continue to build it from there was it the ups and the downs or kind of how did that go as you now were out on your own and uh, and running the business so the first thing was uh you know first thought i had when i set the business was that all i wanted to do was to cover my salary so mm. basically i thought okay so i'm not going to get this paycheck so what would it take for me to get just as much business so that I cover my salary. So I'm at least where I was before, so we don't have to cut our lifestyle or anything like that. And that was pretty quick. So that happened, uh, you know, within within a month, basically. And and then I thought, okay, so what do I do? So uh, maybe I need a real office, not just this apartment. Maybe uh, I hire someone, uh, you know, uh, I took some subscriptions out. So suddenly, within uh, within a month or two, uh, my expenses started to build, and I realized that my salary was not enough because I had to cover the expenses as well. So, mm. uh, within two months, I realized that I had to actually double my salary as a like a revenue just to cover my expenses. And then another two months later, I realized that I had to triple it, and it kept growing, kept growing because the more things I did, obviously the more uh, the more I became a business, not just not just a salary. It was other costs to cover, so that was the first thing. And the other thing was that about six months into into the business, I, I basically burned through my rolodex. I called everyone I knew that. Uh, I could have uh, kind of enticed to become a client. And then I realized that, wow, uh, this is a new phase. Uh, it's no longer personal connections. Now I have to figure out how I promote this business, how I market my business. 
And that was a big, uh, a big mind shift, mindset shift. And I realized that if I can't do that, then I'm, I'm going to be back uh, in, in, in a job within six months. So mm-hmm. I really have to break that knot. And, uh, and, and basically, I started calling people. I started, in the, uh, you know, cold calling uh, people. And uh, you know, looked at uh, newspapers, and if there were articles about companies growing, then I gave them a call, and and I managed to get uh, clients. And then we found um, we latched on. And by that time, that was basically about six nine months later. I had two uh, employees or associates, hmm. and at that time, we uh, there was a, a program that started, which was the capital injection program. It's like the SBA, an organization in Hungary, uh, like the SBA started this program of helping small to medium-sized businesses with, with minority uh, capital injection. So we started uh, working on this and we became very successful because we were one of the first teams that figured out how to apply for these this, this, uh, capital uh, projects. And we got quite a few clients and mm-hmm. we closed a few deals. So that was a really, we had a really good run the next next year and then we had a big had to pivot because about 18 months into running my business uh, around the end of 2004 the 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 person who ran the department in this uh, government-owned bank who were dispersing these loans he kind of uh, I think it was a personal jealousy he was kind of my age and we went to a college at the same time and we were in, in similar circles and he, he was head of uh, the Venture Capital Association. And I think he didn't like uh, me kind of dominating uh, these projects and making a lot of money, uh, you know, and he, he basically taught his team to, to stop working with MB Partners, our firm. So suddenly we lost our breadwinning uh, product and we had to pivot. Uh, and uh, we, we started doing... Uh, trade M&A, uh, you know, selling companies to strategic uh, uh, investors. At that time, there were not too many private equity groups in Hungary uh, to sell these businesses, so strategic buyers. And um, and the first deal that we were going to do, uh, it was a stationary distribution company. It's a nice little company. They had maybe 5 million revenue, a million dollar uh, of profit. And uh, and we were very, very excited. We put it out this teaser and we had uh, a handful of uh, businesses um, making offers and uh, one of them who signed uh, a proposal they came over to do due diligence hmm. and the morning of the due diligence we walked into the company and the ceo called me in and he said uh, steve uh, we have a problem says, what do you mean well actually the problem is that our warehouse is nearly empty, even though we have a lot of inventories on our books, but we actually don't have this inventory. We only uh, inflated them because they didn't, didn't want the bank to call the loan. We are actually making losses as opposed to profits. Mm. And uh, unfortunately, when this guy is going to show up for the due diligence, they're going to see a half empty warehouse. So I just wanted to warn you so that you know them. I says, well, thank you very much. <laughs> so the, these investors came in and it was the most humiliating experience I had, you know, basically had to confess that the, the books are, are you know, cooked and, you know, this company is probably not for them. And they, they already hired the accountants. They were very upset with us. So that was a big lesson for me to do my own due diligence when I sign a client up. It's not enough to just take the money and figure it out what you do afterwards, 
it's mm. better to know who your client is and and that you don't not don't deal with crooks. <laughs> that is and that is always good words of wisdom that you don't deal with crooks. <laughs> so so now you do that, you do that, and you you know you build up the business, you go through the ups and the downs, and you hit the. I think then at, at one point you kind of hit the uh, the EU downturn, right, or the the EU crisis back in 2011. How did that impact things, or how did you pivot or adjust, or what did you know? Where did that send you send you along your journey? So, uh, so yes, so we had a good run and, uh, we, 2007 was the best year uh, ever for us. And I was very confident that we can, you know, double the business next year. I had a bunch of people. We got a a lot of deals. We had like six deals under due diligence in the summer. And, uh, and then the Eurozone crisis hit. And it was a shock because just a few years earlier, uh, maybe I'm confusing the two. So we had a good run in 2008. We had this big dip, and we we recovered from it. Uh, but it was really tough. I had to downsize my team and and, hmm. and almost went out of business. And then we recovered. And then the eurozone crisis, like another uh, dip, happened, and we were down in, at the Lake Balaton, which is like a big lake in in Hungary, uh, with my my wife and kids and on, on vacation and. You're looking at the news, <clears throat> what was happening, and the, your banks were going out of business, countries were going down the drain. And my wife and I looked at each other and said, are we going to wait for strike three? We had the financial crisis, the Lehman-induced financial crisis. We have the Eurozone currency crisis. Maybe there's a third one. Shall we wait for this or shall we make a, make a move? Hmm. So... Uh, you know, started researching options. We looked at different countries, you know, Australia, the UK, Canada, eventually decided to come to the US. And uh, next, uh, next, uh, that was like uh, late August, September. And then the next spring, as we were figuratively, you know, packing our luggage to come over here, I got this call from this guy called Christian, who was running a, a private equity group in Budapest. And he offered to, to basically merge our businesses, became partner, become partners, be, become a merchant banking operation and kind of expand in the region. Hmm. And, uh, and I was very touched, you know, you know, I was very impressed and very happy that he thought about me to, to, to merge, but I told him that, listen, uh, we committed to make this move, so I cannot be your partner. However, it's kind of good timing. If you want to buy my business, why don't you give me an offer? So a week later, I got this offer. I got the email and opened it up and I could not believe what I saw. So basically, uh, to summarize the offer, it was that, Steve, uh, your business is worth zilch, but I'm happy to buy your fancy furniture and your computers. Hmm. Uh, and I'll pay you a commission for all the deals that you have in the hopper. Uh, but you, you're the chief uh, a cook and bottle washer in the business. You're 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 the face of the company. You do the marketing. You're, you know, you're the CEO. You've got all the investor connections. You you get the clients. So without you, we don't have a business. And and kind of he had a point. He had a point. It was very painful because I had been teaching all those companies how to make themselves viable, so they can go and find an investor. And then when it was my turn, it turned out that uh, the emperor had no clothes. So it was very, very painful. And, uh, but then I started, uh, you know, I, I, we moved here anyway. And, and I figured out that the problem was that I was not delegating, I was not empowering my team. 
And I stumbled up on, on another book. So I, I mentioned the E-Myth, which is kind of a management blueprint, I call them. I stumbled upon another management blueprint, Traction, from Gino Wickman. And I started implementing the tools and uh, empowering my team and, you know, basically stepping back from day to day. I was here in Virginia and just uh, going back every three weeks just to make sure everything's okay. But my team uh, took from me and, and they got really excited and they ran with it. And within a year, uh, Christian came back and uh, he he told me that, you know, he, he saw that the business was working and, and my team was executing and I was not here. And obviously it's it's more than just just a one-man show and and uh, I managed to uh, do a deal and sold, sold the business and and uh, moved over here. Now, uh, why it's important? Because this book that you saw behind me, Bible, is about this idea of, you know, being caught with your pants down like I was with mm. an unviable business. So I wouldn't want uh, other entrepreneurs to live through that. Uh, and there is a way to to avoid that. It's by making your business viable. So this book is about how to make your business viable. Hmm. No, and I think that's, that's awesome. So a lot of what you kind of learn from when you went to sell your business and they basically got told, well, it's not worth a whole lot other than the physical assets because you built it around yourself so much that you leave the business kind of shuts down to now this is how you set up the business so that it is viable, that people can come in, they can take over and then it has that value to it. So I think that that's great. So now if you, uh, since you've done the book and since you transitioned there, do you still run any of the businesses, still do any of that? Or is it now primarily shifted over to more business coaching and in, in the, the book or the book area. Yeah. So when I came over here, you know, I started uh, set up an office. So the initial idea was that to continue the investment banking business here. And I had a couple of clients, but uh, I realized that it was a big uh, climb to build a business because I have no connections here whatsoever to build a business, which is very transaction driven and uh, very, not every deal closes. And it's a success driven thing. So I, I would have had to build quite a big machine to have some kind of a, a stability of cash flow. Mm. So we decided not to do that. And I started working uh, with leadership teams and, and I started implementing uh, the entrepreneurial operating system that Traction describes that I implemented in my business and, uh, and, and other management blueprints. And Viable is basically, uh, it gives you the framework to how to figure out what you need to do with your company to live your ideal life, what it takes for you to get there. So what is your magic number? What is the value of your business? Where do you have to take your business? Mm. And then implement a management blueprint like, like Traction, like EOS or DMF, and orchestrate your business so that it's self-managing, it's growing uh, sustainably, and it's profitable. And maybe your business is already ready for you to harvest your magic number to do your ideal life. But if not, then the next phase, phase three, is to, you know, to instill value drivers in the business. And then when you have grown the business to the appropriate value, then how do you transition? Hmm. So how do you monetize your business? What will be your role uh, in the business or outside the business? But in the business, there are various roles. An entrepreneur, I've seen entrepreneurs... Uh, you know, being um, just a shareholder, being a consultant, uh, working in the business, actually, without executive authority, just doing the business, or being an advisor, or being a board member, so that different roles, and there are pros and cons for each, so I talk about that, 
And then I talk about the mindset of what it what's the emotional impact of of letting go of your business and how does it feel? And I felt it myself. It was it was quite difficult uh, because you it gives you status, it gives you connections, uh, it gives you relevance. And when that's gone, then you're suddenly just a sole um, you know a sole person, um, not with not very much leverage. So that's mm-hmm. that's an interesting uh, that was an interesting experience. And and I've seen many entrepreneurs who didn't figure out their end game what they would do after the end game and and they suffered uh acutely and uh, they bought the boat and uh, they went on the vacations and they realized they didn't like to be on the water anyway and the boat wouldn't start anyway because they hadn't brought it out of the marina for six months uh, so it's not really a solution you have to have a compelling future beyond your business and figure that out first and then reverse engineer the viability process Awesome. Well, I think that's uh, definitely a, a fun story to tell and, and, and you know, and, and a good journey as well. Some great advice. Well, as we wrap up towards the end of the podcast, I always have two questions that we hit on. So we'll, let's uh, go ahead and dive on those now. Um, so the first question I always ask is, along your journey, what was the worst business decision you ever made? And what did you learn from it? Uh, I think the worst business decision was in, in 2005, uh, after I read the e-myth, I got so excited. I implemented Emith in my business, and then I got so excited about this whole concept of of systemizing a business that I thought that I would start a second business doing the systemization. So I started this business. It I think the name was Mechanize uh, or the equivalent of it in Hungary, and I hired uh, someone to run it, and we you know we put a lot of energy into creating this this template, this program, and and pitching it. The, at the same time, it was not enough for me. <laughs> at the same time, I also started a business brokerage operation because I was reading all these books about business brokerage. And, and I thought maybe there is, uh, you know, there are a lot more companies, smaller companies that uh, cannot afford investment banking. Maybe we can do a cookie cutter approach for them. And that's going to be a high volume uh, business. And it's going to be very easy, I thought, uh, easier to put the transactions together. So I hired another person. Uh, we, we started doing that as well. So suddenly I was running three businesses and the net effect was none of the new businesses took off because they were not quite the right idea, neither of them. And then my legacy business went down because I didn't pay attention. I dropped the ball on it. So mm. essentially I lost two valuable employees. One of them was a, an old friend that I had to let go. So very painful. I had a high-flying employee who was one of the most promising one who I appointed to run the brokerage and he got burnt out and he left. So I lost him. Plus he started, the, we started making losses in the losses in the investment banking business. So it was a huge mess. And uh, it was just because I wasn't disciplined enough. I thought just because one business is going well, uh, I kind of have the Midas touch and wherever I, I get into, it's going to go as well and lost my focus and uh, almost, uh, you know, ran into trouble, Man- managed to course correct, but uh, we lost time and, uh, and attention and money and, and good people. Mm. Well, I think, but I think that, you know, that's sometimes, and I, and I tend to even suffer with it a, a bit as well as I think a lot of entrepreneurs, you have a lot of what are 
up here at least, and probably a lot of them are good ideas and things are exciting. You catch a new thing, you want to implement it, you want to try some out, start a new business. And, you know, that can be great and lead to a lot of opportunities. But if you get kind of, you know, the old saying over your skis or you get too far ahead of yourself and or you get things to where you're too strapped on time, you're not able to focus on the core of what you're doing. And then it can actually, you know, have that adverse adverse effect as you, as you touched on. More, so more, we- more entrepreneurs go bankrupt because more businesses go out of business because of indigestion rather than starvation. So that's yeah, the indigestion no. situation. Yeah, so now, now let's jump to the second question, which is if you're, give, or if you're talking to somebody that's just getting into a startup or a small business, what'd be the one piece of advice you give them? Um, so I think there are two types of advice. If this is a funded business, so someone goes out and it's venture backed, then obviously that's going to be different. So my advice is going to be from the perspective of the entrepreneur who is bootstrapping their business. Mm-hmm. And it is to crawl before you walk and walk before you run. I think it's really important to, uh, to not grow too fast, uh, to, uh, you know, to keep the, keep this gradual pace uh, because it's not just growing a business is about figuring out how you can sustain that business. And every step of growth makes the stability of the business. It reduces the stability of the business. You have to grow into that larger business so that you are on top of it and you can then get to the next level. And I think a big mistake is to grow, try to grow too fast. Mm. Um, and, um, and then you can run out of money. You can run out of uh, the ability to execute. You you hire people who are not right, uh, you know, right, not right for your organization or for your seat. So you get into all sorts of troubles. Um, and uh, you know, Jim Collins has this concept of the twenty mile march, and he talks about the story of uh, nineteen. I think it was nineteen eleven when or, or nineteen nineteen when the two explorer groups. I think 1911, I think it was a 14. Anyway, uh, there were two groups trying to get to the, uh, to the Antarctics, uh, to the Antarctica. And one was uh, Scott, who was a, a Brit. And there was Amundsen, a Norwegian. And the Brit, uh, he basically, uh, when it was bright weather and good weather, they would march 50 to 70 miles. And when they had bad weather, they basically stayed in their tent to wait for the bad weather to go away. Whereas Amundsen, he had this strategy of 20 mile march. So every day they would get out of that tent, they marched 20 miles, whether it was beautiful weather or terrible weather, they would do that and they would stop and they would you know, goof off, uh, do something else. If it was bad weather, they would still make the 20 miles. So that kept the team, uh, uh, the, kept the morale high and kept them progressing. Um, and, and they got there and back with food to spare while Scott's team basically died, they they reached the the Antarctica. They were second, so they they were, they didn't win the race, and they they died on the way back, twenty miles from the next food depot because they exhausted themselves. No, so the so I, I, I mark, love that, and I yeah. love that idea of you know basically you know don't exhaust yourself, or you know if you are going at such a pace on the business and, and growing it or bringing people on or doing other things that you exhausted that can have a lot of that adverse. So I think that that's, that's a great advice. 
Well, this is a quick reminder to people. We do have the bonus question. We'll talk just a little about intellectual property, but uh, for the, nor- or the, the normal part of the episode, um, we'll go ahead and wrap it up and want to uh, say thank you, Steve, for coming on. It's been a fun. It's been a pleasure. Now, for all of you that are listeners, if you have your own journey to tell and you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, feel free to go to inventiveguest.com. Glad to be on the show. Two more things as listener. One, make sure to click subscribe in your podcast player so you know when all of our awesome episodes come out. And two, leave us a review so new people know how to find it or the awesome episodes as well. Last but not least, if you ever need help with your patents, trademarks, or anything else, just feel free to go to strategymeeting.com and uh, grab some time with us to chat, and we're always here to help. So now with that, now that we've uh, had your journey, we always kind of make the fun transition of where you had to switch, switch gears a bit and talk a little bit about intellectual property. So with that, you know, um, I'll turn it over to you. What is your top intellectual property question? Yeah, so my question is uh, whether it's possible, how it's possible to trademark a, a common use word in the English language. So, so specifically, uh, the title of my book, I know that, as far as I understand, book titles cannot be trademarked, but uh, but words sometimes can be trademarked. So, for example, the uh, I mentioned your traction, the book, mm-hmm. uh, the traction word, U.S. Worldwide managed to trademark traction word, even though it's not a product, it's title of a book. Um, there's other ways to use. They use the traction word, but it's I'm not clear on how they use it or how they made it. So anyway, so long, long question. What are the ways of turning a common use English word into a trademark without having to necessarily have a product with the same name? Um, yeah, so there's a few, a few things to unpack. So I'll try and hit on those. I mean, generally, for a trademark, a trademark has, or whether it's a word, whether it's a logo, whether it's the name of a product or anything else, it has to be tied to a goods or services that you're offering. And so, in other words, you have to be selling something with that, you know, using the mark, you have to be providing a service. So you can, you know, whether it's a plumbing service, car wash, attorneys, anything else, you know, whatever it is, but it has to be tied with a goods and service because really what trademarks are intended to do is to associate a goods or services with uh, with the the source or be a source identifier so in other words i know when i see coca-cola that it's going to be sold by the company coca-cola and i know that with that i know who's selling it i know what the quality is i know where it's coming from and you know so that's identifying the source of who's buying it so when you get into trademarks that's really the first step you have to do and so the problem you get into is as we talked a little bit about a book is if you knew the name of a book it doesn't necessarily identify who's selling the book right if i use the word and you know you have your book in the background viable it's a great name and it's a great brand but no if people aren't going to look and think okay the name of that book indicates that here's a person that's selling it or here's a you know the source of the goods or services similar to you know now there's always an exception you know you can do as an example Harry Potter as a brand, they built, you know, a series of books, multiple books, they build out a whole brand around the book, such that now when people hear Harry Potter, they think, okay, it's not just a name of a book, but it's a whole name of a series. I know what is going along with it. I know there's previous books. I know it's going to be sold by this. And so you can build it around a book, but it has to be almost more of a series. Otherwise, generally, it's hard just to do it as a name or a title of a book. The other thing you can look at is, you know, if you're to take, for instance, uh, Stephen Covey, which did the seven habits of highly effective, you know, people, he built a a whole franchise around that, but it was really out of, 
not just a book, but also, you know, he took what each of those habits were and he built seminars and webinars and trainings and certifications and all those things. And so while it was kind of centered around a book initially, it branched out to goods and services. So now when you hear the seven habits of highly effective people, you don't just think of the book, but you think of all the things that come along that and all the marketing and the branding and everything that came with that. So genuinely, when you're looking at a trademark, it's, you know, Generally, it has to be identified the source of goods or services. It has to be tied to something that's in commerce, whether it's a good or a service. And then the other thing when you look at a trademark is to whether or not it's a trademarkable term is it has to be something that's more than merely descriptive. Meaning if all you're doing is, you know, if as an example, if you're going out and you wanted to open up a fruit stand and you're going to sell the, fr- or the, or the fruit apples and you named your fruit stand apple, well, you can't, you wouldn't be able to trademark that because everybody describes the word, uh, the fruit apple as an apple. And so people aren't going to think that that's a source of identification. Now, if you go out and start a consumer electronics company with the word apple, it's not going to be merely descriptive because people don't typically call, call a smartphone apples because it has no, nothing to do with the word apple. So those are kind of a few things as you go along or the few basics of trademarks with the really the idea of it has to identify a source of goods and services that you're selling. And then you have to do something that's not merely descriptive. So with mm-hmm. that, that's going to, we'll wrap it up for there. And if you have any other questions on uh, intellectual property, patents, trademarks, or anything else, whether you or any of the listeners, feel free to go to strategymeeting.com. We're always here, here to chat and answer questions and always here to help. And uh, with that, I wish the next leg of your journey even better than the last. And thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Devin. It was a fun to chat with you. Thank you.